All right, Acts 17. We're going to start at verse 16, and we're just going to read through this a little bit today. So we open. We got them open? Great. The digital age, we can open it so much faster today. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Keep your thumb in your Bibles and we'll come back to that in a moment. Well, in a few moments. Athens was a free city and it had been taken over by the Romans in 146 BC. It had been the center of all things intellectual and cultural for around five centuries. And it was the birthplace of the Hellenistic culture that was spoken about throughout the series at times, the Greek concept of culture and, and thinking. Uh, that had started being promoted through Alexander the Great and people like that. In the time that Paul was visiting the city, it was known for its mathematics, its art, philosophy, literature, science, uh, architecture, music, theatre. Athenian culture gave us Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Epicurus and others, all of whom who contributed to the thinking and makeup of the culture long before Christianity and even Judaism had a presence in that city. It was the birthplace of our modern understanding of, of democracy and was home to one of the top three universities of the ancient world. And it was the place where the social order called the Ecclesia came from so when jesus said i'm going to put a social order together and actually you guys are going to form that he called it the ecclesia we translate that today as church started all in athens while rome was a clear military superpower and the governing force of that part of the world athens was the clear cultural power and it's interesting that rome took its cultural cues from athens but Athens took its governing cues from Rome. Athens was also highly idolatrous and superstitious. At the time of Paul's visit, temples built centuries before stood strong and were frequented by everyone. In ancient, one ancient Roma, a Roman writer said that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. In the Parthenon, there was a, a gold and ivory statue of the goddess Athena. There were images, statues and sites of worship dedicated to Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana and Dionysus, among many others. And they'd been made by the best of the best in sculptors and architects, using the best materials they could find, brass, gold, silver, marble. Visually, Athens would have been one of those, oh, what a specimen it would have been an absolutely, truly remarkable uh, place to have visited. We read here that Paul enters the city. He's ahead of the, the crowd that he was with. They're probably still doing ministry behind him. He's walking ahead, waiting for the others to catch up. And what stands out to him is not the splendor of the city, but it's misguided worship. 
There's a huge depth and a capacity for worship within the city. There is a spiritual hunger. There's an openness to religious concepts. But from what Paul sees, he doesn't identify anything that looks like truth. And we read here that it actually greatly troubled Paul. The word distress used there is a parallel term for the times that God was saddened at Israel's idolatry. When the Greek New Old Testament was written, the same word was used for distress when it talked about God coming and seeing the idolatry of his people. And it speaks of absolute heartbreak. Paul's soul was aching as he walked in, whether you're seeing what God was seeing and deeply moved and deeply distressed within. Heartbreak. But there's a glimmer of hope. At least there's a synagogue there. And like his usual way, he starts there. We read that and we read that he has the opportunity to reason with them for quite some time. But then he moves on to speaking with passers-by in the Agora. This served as a market and a bit of a hub of activity for the everyday life of the general public. There would be your standard market trading there, but it also served as a place where people went at their leisure. Shopping malls today have a bit of appeal like that. I tried to liken it to something in the mount. I tried to look at the marketplace and I'm trying to think, no, you get crickets down there. You think Rundle Mall? You think Melbourne Central? Uh, you kind of got that place where people, you know, you, you, you go there because you want to make purchases, but not necessarily so, right? Sometimes you just want to meet. You won't have too much. You'll have $5 in your pocket for a coffee, nothing else, and you'll go to the marketplace, won't you? Because you will socialize and you will, you will inca- you know, you'll hear the heartbeat of the street by going to those places. I'm going to put something to you today. See, my job is to take the ancient... We titled this series Acts Reenacted, right? So the idea is to try to take an ancient story and put a modern application to it. That's a... No... It's, it's, a, it's a difficult task to do with, with a lot of scripture. But I'm going to put to you today that any setting in your life that captures people at leisure with the freedom to talk about the views of the world, could be your personal agora. The park where the kids play is an agora. The craft markets are an agora. The metro cafe, it's loud enough to be one. Presto, Melstar, the RSL, over a 500 gram steak. The Mac, while you're watching the footy, it's the only place of Foxtel. All these can serve as a bit of an agora. And I've seen many settings where they, it just actually, it's amazing what discussion can take place in those environments. It's in your agora moments that you encounter the philosophies of the street. Where we start to hear what people think, how people interact, what is their makeup, what is their approach to life, and how does it affect their religious viewpoint as well? In our passage, we've got two standout ones of Athens at the time. 
They're highlighted in that passage I just read and they actually represent modern secular thinking quite well. Epicurean philosophy was founded by Epicurus three centuries before Paul hit the scene. It looked at religious notions but concluded that the gods were so remote and removed that they didn't take any interest or intervene in mere human affairs. There was an assumption that God existed. There was an assumption that there was a God or gods that made the world. But beyond that, the things that happened around us were simply a matter of chance. Because the gods were so distant, they took no interest in our lifestyle choices or our future. This meant no judgment. Because if there was no future, if there was no consequences, no judgment. They also believed in no immortality. So once life was done, once we died, they throw us in the ground and life is done. That's it. That was the viewpoint of an Epicurean. Since there was no reason to worry about the eternal consequences, live life in pursuit of personal pleasure. You have one life and your personal pleasure in it is what you're going to get. So live it up. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who live that way. There is nothing beyond now. Nothing beyond, let's live like there's no tomorrow. Let's live fast, hard lives. You only get one life, might as well maximize your minutes, right? Live hard, party hard, don't think of the consequences. And definitely don't think of anything beyond this life now. It's actually interesting that Luke, who wrote Acts, also in his gospel captured that mindset in one of Jesus' parables. Luke 12, 16 to 21. Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I He was very blessed. Therefore, blessed meant enough for me and enough for my neighbor. Instead, he looks in the mirror and goes, this is what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my barn and I'm going to build a bigger one. And there I'm going to store all my surplus. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich towards God. The key saying of an Epicurean, it's actually captured in Isaiah speaking into worldly ideas getting into the people of God too, was eat, drink, be merry. For tomorrow we perish. Jesus was actually speaking into a Hellenistic worldview there amongst God's people making its way in. God's people have always been instructed to think of the eternal effect of their life. The Stoics acknowledged the supreme being but refused to define it. Instead, they embraced a doctrine that we know today as pantheism. God is pretty much the cosmic whole. He's everything around us, including ourselves. 
This was different to Judeo-Christian thought in that it didn't separate God from creation. It intertwined the two. Now, there was a bit of a positive because out of this reverence for everything being God, they taught that they must live in harmony with nature and they must live with restraint, have integrity, have goodwill towards others. There were some good things in there. But this was because they believed they were essentially serving each other and themselves as gods because of it. The outcome of that was actually a lot of arrogance and a lot of self-righteousness because they took pride in taking the high moral ground and considered themselves every bit like God as a result. In today's thinking, Stoicism is not a movement per se. But Stoic thinking is definitely all around us. The ones who believe their moral standing and outward goodness goodness are enough to be fine when life is done, regardless of how they respond to Christ. The people that say, look, I'm good enough. Life ends. I don't need Jesus because I'm good enough as I am. That's a very stoic idea. It's interesting that groups like Freemasonry are often regarded as neo-stoic as well because of their appearance of high moral ground until you get to what's underbelly. And also their vague acknowledgement of a supreme being. You've got that architect of the universe you acknowledge. Um, you know, and that's shades of stoic influence right there as well. And out of their stoicism idea, they, they do good works and that sort of thing, but they have a very, it, it generates a very self de- self-dependent idea and even a self-deifying idea about yourself. In Paul's time, these two philosophies were quite prevalent. If you move to Athens, you're trying to go, what religion will I embrace or how will I embrace the gods? How will I ponder this? You would actually often consider your religious thought and filter it through these philosophical issues first. Today, the people in our Agora do the same. That's actually the Epicurean larder there on, on screen. The word is still used a lot. All around, that's, that's, that's in this main street of Wangaratta, where I just moved from. Just outside there, King Valley, the, the Brown Brothers Winery has a thing called the Epicurean Center. It is their, their food center. It's where they, do re- where they have a restaurant where they build meals around their wine. So you can eat, drink and be merry. It's all about the food. Some people will ponder God, but might look at it through Epicurean eyes. And then I'll ask, okay, I'll consider religion, but what's in it for me? What pleasure do I gain or lose by my allegiance to Jesus Christ? A lot of religion in Athens was about igniting the pleasure of people. That's why there was a lot of immorality during its worship. That's why there was temple prostitution. Or they'll look at it through stoic eyes. Am I willing to separate God from my created universe? Can I be humble enough to acknowledge my need of God by dropping my own deity? And my own self-righteous facade. 
can I go, you know what? My morality is not in the same plane as God's. And I need something or someone to do something about that. Those are the challenges. Let's keep reading. We're going to keep reading verse 19. Let's look at the interaction that Paul had. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. That's another big word. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are very ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps even reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commends all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear again from you on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The Areopagus was the council of great thinkers that presided over the philosophical, educational, and moral and religious matters of Athenian culture. There's a big mouthful for you. The members of this council must have been a government minister of some description somewhere in their life. And they had to be over 60 years of age. It has no equal in today's society. The closest thing I've seen was actually some of those summits where some of the great political minds and some of the business, the, 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 the world leaders sort of get together outside of politics and that where they try to get minds together to think about present and future of the earth. I remember one of those taking place in Melbourne uh, back in about 2003 or something like that. Bill Gates came to town. And, he came, and we had that whole summit in the convention centre in Melbourne. It's massive. 
I remember doing deliveries in the Melbourne CBD that particular day. And I'm parked and I'm doing a delivery. I come out and I could not move my ute for a while. Reason being, the whole street had been cordoned off. There's a good 20 police motorcycles blocking everything for a clear run of a Toyota coaster, of all things, to come through the main street with one person in it. It was Bill Gates driving past and police everywhere escorting this guy. He makes computers. Come on. Some of you here are going, protect that man. Areopagus means hill of Aries. And this council met up there northwest of the Acropolis in a place that was once a court of law. With Roman rule, these legal powers were greatly diminished by the first century, but they were able to talk about morality and philosophy quite freely. And it's in this Areopagus environment that Paul is able to speak to the philosophical mindset of the marketplace down the hill. And the gospel he preaches here has some very interesting twists and turns. Paul's, any speech captured in Acts is a summary. So we don't know every single word that Paul wrote. Luke would not have written down every single word that was written or spoken. He would have given the bullet points. These dot points, I reckon, give us some good principles to work with in our missional conversations. We've already identified that our mission field thinks a certain way. This is how Paul speaks into that. He first starts by commending their inquisitive and religious ways. He notes all their objects of worship. He notes that they are habitually looking for new ways of thinking. And he's going, you know what? I like the fact that you're seeking. I like the fact that there is a conversation that can be done, that you're not a completely closed book, that I can actually engage with you further. How many know it's easier to have a seeker than a closed book, right? All right, because you can't converse with a closed book. You can converse respectfully with a seeker. Athens was a progressive people that needed to be set straight. This was no redneck backwater. This was a deeply intelligent group of people and had to be treated as such. And Paul is not silly with the window of opportunity he has. He's very respectful. He doesn't come in there going, coming in cold going, you're all going to hell with this idol stuff. But instead, he's able to capture the heart that is behind where they're at, find some grounds to be able to start from and be able to work from there. Amongst all their religiosity, there's actually an altar which is dedicated to an unknown God. And that was actually quite a common thing. Ancient literature says all around that area there were a lot of these little altars. Which is amazing because there were so many religious options out there. Someone still said, you know what, just in case we'll put that one there. It's like people today who really don't nail the colours to the mast of any religion whatsoever but will still put a cross around their neck just, just in case. We've got our... We, we, kind of like to there is a there's a group of us that kind of wants to know that we know that we're kind of on track and even if what we got now isn't working at least we've got our plan b that's going to get us over the line 
And yet Christianity is plan A and we trust completely on it, right? We've got a great place to start and now he starts to address the Stoics and the Epicureans. Let's keep a bit of a running tally. God made the heaven and the earth. That's what he opens up with. The God made the heaven and the earth. The Epicureans are going, yep, God's out there. He made it. The Stoics, yep, he's the architect of the universe. Yep, he or they did. There's a creator out there, we'll give you that. Cool, we're on the same page so far. God doesn't live in temples made by hand. And the Epicureans are going, we're with you, Paul. To them, the gods made everything, then took off. Why have temples when the gods aren't close enough to even receive worship? So the Epicureans are going, yeah, fine, we'll be with you on that one. Nor is he served by human hands and doesn't need anything. He gives life and breath to everyone. The Stoics are going, yes. There is a supernatural life force of some sort out there and this in turn was within everyone and everything. So they were going, all right, we see that, cool. From one man he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their hands. Stoics are going awesome. They saw the spiritual connection of all men. At this point, we see that both the Epicurean minds and the Stoic minds, the ones in our agoras, in our mission fields, actually have elements of truth about what they believe. always helps to start addressing the validity of thinking. And then Paul now brings his truth to where they're at. He believes he can finish their arguments a bit. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps even reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. You Epicureans, you think God's are distant and disinterested, but God is close. You think he's disinterested. But he's very interested in us. And Jesus' presence on the earth is a proof that God has a vested interest in redeeming us. Stoics, he's not in you the way you think. But if you reach out to him, he can be. In your sinful state, God remains an external person. But through faith, we receive the Holy Spirit and and, and actually have him indwelling. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In him we move, live and move and have our being. I've heard that in song lyrics, in, sung in church. What passage is Paul quoting? Do we know the Old Testament reference that he's referred to there? Well done, you're searching. None. He's tapping into Athenian pop culture here to illustrate his point. Like the crowd in Lystra, this crowd in front of him was 100% pagan. Completely unfamiliar with ancient Hebrew text. In fact, 
the sophisticated Greeks would have considered the ancient Hebrew quite primitive and irrelevant. Paul is using things they were familiar with to make his point. In the world today, we've got people who are unfamiliar with our supposedly primitive Bible, our outdated source of living. No point quoting it if they don't believe it, and yet there's a lot of pop culture we can use to illustrate our point. Just look at Narnia. C.S. Lewis' whole point of writing Narnia was to make an analogy of Jesus Christ, right? That's what Aslan is. We've got out things out there we can try to liken things just to break the barriers down. Paul starts by quoting Epimenides, 600 BC. He wrote that, in him we move, we have our being. 600 BC, and he wrote it about Zeus. From that, Paul is able to communicate that they already had an understanding of a God who was the originator of life. The concept was right. But Paul's going, you know what? What, who you have in mind is not quite there. Let me show you the way it really is. He brought the right doctrine into an already established understanding. The second quote was from a Stoic author named Aratus. He was from Paul's home ground. In 300 BC, he wrote that. We are his offspring. And Paul is saying, you know what? You've heard that phrase? Yes, there is the possibility to become sons and daughters of God. But you're not there yet. You enter true sonship. You become an heir with Christ because of your faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Then he brings it back to Jesus. Since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked this ignorance, but now he commands all people to repent. He's saying this, if you are living beings and you already have this idea that we are the offspring of the gods and carriers of all their wisdom and creativity, why do you relegate your gods to an inanimate and man-made thing like a statue? That kind of limits God, right? It shows how small our mind is when we're trying to conceive what God is. In your idolatry, you're actually defying the logic you have. You're demonstrating how limited your understanding of God actually is. And Paul goes on to say this. That puts you in a state of, and I say this with all respect to your Athenian intellectualism, ignorance. In the end, even the wisest mind outside of Jesus hasn't got it nailed yet. When we don't know Jesus, we are ignorant of the magnitude of God, just how big he is. We don't know. We're ignorant of his holiness. Without Christ, we think our goodness is equal to God's goodness. And it's not. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. In our ignorance, we can miss the nature of God's love. And how amazing that truly is for us. In our ignorance, we can lose sight of his proximity. We can think he's miles away when he's right here. And we can be ignorant of the life that happens beyond this one. 
and what might be in store for that. The scriptures tell us that Jesus will be on that throne and we'll all give an account. He's the one given the power to judge. It's this ignorance in our agora that we need to gently and wisely bring those people to realize so that they can know the truth and then show them the way of repentance. And before it's too late, as we see in Paul's final statement, because of all that, eternity matters. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You can be remain in ignorance or we can repent. We can change our mind about where we stand. Epicureans, there's a life after this one and God himself will require that we give an account. Stoics, there is a very definite God of all creation. He's not a vague entity. He's one who is above us and separate from us. And he, we will stand before him one day. And only the truly righteous will stand. Let's place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Be made, just right, be made righteous through him. Not try to stand on what we think is good, but know who is good. And walk in confidence from this day forth. That's kind of the principles that Paul works with there. Sometimes you need to go to play the long game with, with our ministry, with our mission fields. We need to speak into where people are really and actually helping them grapple with the thinking that they are dealing with. Hopefully some of this will give you a bit of a framework to understand that they're thinking a certain way and we can address those thinkings a certain way. I'm going to, find, I'm going to come to a close now and um, I just want to leave a couple of quick thoughts with you real briefly. And I'm going to get the band up now. The first final thought is simply this. The gospel has power to affect an entire culture. It has been said that there are seven pillars of a modern culture. Want to try and rattle them off? What do you reckon are the pillars of a modern culture? What what are some of the pillars? Social orders, what are you thinking? I'll give you a hint. Religion's one. Family, law and order, yep, well we got government, business, any teachers here, education, arts, media, major pillars of society today, of a modern culture. As we followed Paul's travels from Antioch to Athens, We've seen that Paul has now been given a space to speak into every one of those cultural pillars. And great things have happened. In certain theological circles, we call that the cultural mandate of the church. Some say that that cultural, that creation mandate and the cultural mandate are hand in hand. What was created in Eden was actually supposed to sort of play out this sort of way. But there is a mandate today to actually reach out to every pillar of the community and culture that we live in. I believe in the coming years we're going to receive many opportunities to do that. We have a show to speak into shortly. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens there. In verse 34 we read that a few people became followers of Christ. It doesn't sound like a huge altar call, doesn't it? It's not exactly Billy Graham there. 
But we read about a lady named Damaris, but also a fellow named Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, the people he was addressing. Paul got through to one of the toughest intellectual minds in his time through the simplicity of a gospel and a wise delivery. Don't be afraid to share what you have in your heart, even if you feel it's like, oh, this is too simple to bring to this. No, your Agora setting needs simplicity. Did Paul make a real difference in Athens? I would argue that yes, he did, and bigger than he anticipated. Dionysius was named after the patron god of the arts, Dionysus. And Athens held an annual performing arts festival called Dionysia. It was opened by a bull sacrificed to that idol. It has been said that this member of the Areopagus was the guy who oversaw that festival. And there is ancient history that points to his removal of the sacrifices in order to make it a more secular and less religious thing. He's also been referred to in church history as the first bishop of Athens and its first martyr. Paul's witness led to a shift in the cultural makeup of a city. What will your witness do in the cultural makeup of ours? The other thing I want to capture is Paul's motivation that I spoke about at the start. This deep moving that he had, this groaning, this pain of what he was seeing. I wonder if we can capture that in ourselves. The legendary theologian, John Stott, he wrote this. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on so that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission and tongue-tied in testimony? I think the major reason is this. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. We've never had the sense of indignation which he had. Divine jealousy is not stirred within us. We constantly pray, hallowed be your name. But we do not seem to mean it or to care that his name is so widely profaned. And why is this? If we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul, this is because we do not see like Paul. I'm going to go back to that video clip I played at the start. You thought I forgot that, didn't you? No, of course not. Western children with loads of information at their fingertips. A generation that has been said spends at least 27% of their time in front of screens nowadays. Not knowing who Jesus was when the, he was right in front of them. Ronald McDonald is a bigger name in a child's vocabulary than Jesus Christ. Everywhere I go, all around Australia, I've met kids as ignorant as that, as, not, as, as unaware as that. And I dare say it's because there's parents who don't know either. Right outside our walls are altars everywhere to the unknown God. People out there going, you may be out there, but I've got no 
clue who you are or what you're about. And we're here in church knowing the answer. Let's feel and see and speak like Paul. We have marketplaces to reach. We have agoras. We have area pegasus. We have philosophies and mindsets and all sorts of religious notions that are just begging for an ounce of truth that you and I can bring. I wonder if you'd be willing to share what you have because you can make a major difference. Entire cultures can shift because of what we know. I'm going to leave that with you. I'll close in prayer and I'll hand over to worship.